Rabbi Sold I to the merchant ships Minutes after they took I Welcome to Radio Free Canada. I'm your host, Kevin Annett, with my co-host today, Rachel Aird, back again after uh, one week. It's July 23rd, and you are hearing this from the liberated zone, once known as Canada, the Republic of Kanata, claimed under common law jurisdiction as we, the people of planet Earth, are reclaiming all of creation for we, the people. You can follow our work every Sunday here, 3 p.m. Pacific time at the BBS Radio Network. And also the work, of course, the very important work of the Tribunal of Crimes of Church and State at itccs.org. Now, if you go to that latest posting at itccs.org today, you'll see a topic we're going to be talking about today, how the state-funded Native leaders have shut down once again an expose of crimes against their own people on the west coast of Canada. We're going to get into that in a minute. Uh, with Rachel, but I, I wanted to respond to the fact that after last week's show, where we began to discuss the 25 years of this campaign, the lessons learned, the victories won, uh, we got a number of emails saying, please go into more detail, uh, especially about the work in Europe, the campaign to expose the Ninth Circle, the w- role of the common law courts in bringing these crimes to light, and at the Mushhole Dig in Brantford, Ontario, where you actually uncover the remains of children and other things related to these crimes in Canada, crimes of genocide. So we will get into more of that today, and it's it's an honor and pleasure to have Rachel back with me again. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Kevin. It's, it's great to be uh, back. Thank it's you for good having to me. have a dialogue about this. You know, I find that it, it's easy to kind of go off on a rant, but a lot more is brought out in the course of two people talking. And, and I, uh, people, listeners have, you know, written in and said how much they appreciated last week's show. So it's good to have you back. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yes. And uh, I wanted to just ask you kind of a, on, a, on a personal level, you know, when we're talking about all this stuff, um, I remember we were talking earlier and you said you had a recognition all of a sudden that we're at war, that our children's mm-hmm. lives are at stake and we are facing that. And that causes kind of a little mental shift to go on in us, realizing we're not in the conditions that we thought we once were in. Do you want to kind of just talk a little bit about that? Because that intrigued me when you said that. Yes, yeah, sure. It was um, probably 2011 and um, I just had that insight where I had been learning a lot and reading a lot and having a lot of conversations and trying to make sense of um, some of the atrocities that I was seeing in the First Nations communities and reserves uh, in Alberta. And um, I realized, you know, uh, at one point that um, this it's not isolated just to First Nations people, and this is really something affecting all Canadians. And in fact, it's something affecting the entire world. And I had this insight and I sort of thought this is its like spiritual warfare and I can't solve the situation by pretending that, that it's not. And I have to get stronger and I have to have new solutions and develop new skills and new capacities to really um, move forward in a positive way but being really realistic about the nature of the negativity that, uh, that needs to be dealt with. So. Exactly. And that's often the hardest thing, you know, when you start talking about this to people. Um, there's this thing about Canadians, I don't know what it is, there's different theories about this, but uh, especially out on the West Coast, you know, people say, hey, you know, like, this is kind of negative, man. Like, do you have to always be going on about talking about dead children and trafficking in that? Isn't there any hope? Aren't there any victories anywhere? And right. and I want to tell people there are. We have won great victories through our stamina on this, and, and uh, you know, we, we do want to get into a bit of that today. Um, mm-hmm. So... Why don't we just jump in? <laughs> Excellent. Let's do that. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, with what happened recently with the play being shut down, um, you know, I was just feeling that it um, must be quite disappointing for you to, um, you know, go after something you're passionate about and continue to be um, stonewalled like that. So um, can you share a little bit about, you know, what that's been like for you recently? Well, yeah, it's, it was an attempt to, uh, I wrote this play called Doppelganger, and Doppelganger is in, in a, I think it's a German legend, of everyone in the world having a twin, a shadow personality that is somebody else who looks exactly like us, but is actually our, our shadow, our evil opposite, if you like. 
And um, mm-hmm. that can be true about a whole society. So I use that as kind of a metaphor for this character who is a United Church minister on the West Coast. He's on trial. This is the plot of the play. He's on trial in a British Columbia court in the present day for experiments he conducted against Aboriginal children at the Nanaimo Indian Hospital. Now, all of this is based on real evidence, eyewitness testimonies, mm-hmm. the kind of stuff you can see at itccs.org. Now, the government and the churches, of course, are trying to scapegoat the guy, make him seem like he's the only, he's the Lee Harvey Oswald here. There's nobody else involved except him. But in the Mm. course of the trial, it turns out that he's more than who he seems to be. And he, in fact, I I won't go, we're hopefully going to produce this play eventually, so I don't want to give the whole thing away. But what happened was two of the local band council chiefs around Duncan, B.C., a guy called Joe Thorne and Willie Seymour, They got a copy of the script, and they went on a rampage because it was talking about government-funded medical experiments on their own people. Now, both of these guys have a history. Their families were involved in bringing their own children into the residential schools. This is the deal that was worked out with some of the chiefs. We won't touch your children if you bring other kids into the school. In fact, uh, Joe Thorne, one of the guys who was... Uh, you know, bad-mouthing me in the play and getting actors to drop away from its production. Um, mm-hmm. His dad, Chief Fred Thorne, was actually paid by the Canadian government in the 1940s and 50s to track down runaway children, bring them back to the Cooper Island School, where a lot of them died. And we have mm-hmm. those documents in our murderbydecree.com uh, book. Now, naturally, right. these these guys don't want this truth coming out, and so they made sure that this play would not be produced. So sure enough, pressure was brought to bear on the director and the actors. The whole thing was shut down. It was scheduled to be run in Duncan, British Columbia, September 22nd to 25th. Now that's not happening. Um, as to how it affected me, well, in a way, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, okay, here's part eight in the saga. I mean, it's nothing new in terms of how the Native chiefs have been doing this. I, I remember an anecdote I told you back in 2008, when the Canadian government was making noises about an apology about the residential school genocide, our film Unrepentant had just come out, our documentary film Unrepentant. And the Globe and Mail, uh, through a reporter called Bill Curry, who had sat down and talked to me and a lot of the witnesses, they were going to run a major review of our documentary film Unrepentant in the Globe and Mail. Well, guess who called them up and shut that down? The Assembly of First Mm -hmm. Nations, which is a government front you know, the, the the Native chiefs who are all funded by the government to do their bidding, and they okay. shut that down. So in a way, it's kind of a repetition of that, but, you know, it always is appalling to me how easily people are just scared off without even asking right. questions, without even defying this, and that's something we can talk about, why that happens, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's important to um, to have a chance to talk about how how are they getting away with this, and how does it continu- continue and I think one of the ways it continues is by things being left out of the, the mainstream media so that uh, the, right. the mass of population isn't aware of, of really significant things happening. Absolutely. That's what this show is all about, to try to provide that alternative voice. But, I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing the, the degree to which, as people know, control is now so centralized. Uh, I remember an example of what you're talking about. When we did our first tribunal, in 1998, in the summer of 1998 in Vancouver, we invited in um, international observers and people from all over the world to look at this evidence we were accumulating mm-hmm. about, you know, the murders, sterilization programs, the kinds of things that were in the play, doppelganger, you know, experimentation yeah. on Native children, all the, the eyewitnesses, the documents and everything. That that tribunal was completely whitewashed, just like the, the Mushhole Dig Later, where we uncovered the remains of children. A complete blackout in the Canadian media. I think the Globe and Mail right. made a passing reference to it, but nothing. The first independent tribunal into crimes of genocide in Canada, not reported by anywhere, anywhere in the Canadian media, whereas the European press had lots of reports about it. So, you know, it's, it's that same old dilemma. How do you take on a crime in your own backyard when all of the vested mm. interests who did it are still in power, right? Right. So you're saying in, in in Europe it's a little bit different. Is that um was your experience different in Ireland with um that kind of response in the media? Well yeah, that was the, the neat thing about when uh when we got shut down here in Canada in a big way after the after the apology. Um you see before the this the official apology which was simply a legal device to indemnify the churches and government for any any liability under the law. 
you issue an apology, and under the law, it's a way to to indemnify yourself. It means you can't be sued or held liable for any of the crimes anymore. After that apology, suddenly um, my name in this whole campaign was removed. Uh, uh, they never used the word Kevin Annett anymore. They always said a controversial former minister is, is yeah. was, was their term for me, but it was kind of like down the memory hole. And at that very same time, I got in, uh, invitations from survivors in Ireland to come over and start to work there with them. That's what led to the formation of the ITCCS, the tribunal. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like one door closes, another opens, and you've got to move with that current. It's, it's like what Sun Tzu says in The Art of War, be flexible against a bigger adversary so you can learn to outflank them. So I had to learn how to do mm-hmm. that because, you know, stubborn me, I, I just wanted to stay in Canada and keep flailing away. But, you know, there were big opportunities opening in Europe because of that. Right. Right. The, um, so, the other. Th- oh, sorry. Go ahead. Please go on. No, please go ahead. Well, the other thing that I, I became aware of when I went to Europe for the first time, and we were invited to Italy as well, uh, and that's a whole story in itself. We can talk about uh, what what happened in Rome, <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, and the downfall of, of Pope Benedict, which was fun to take part in. But uh, right. the uh, the thing that you, you realize going to Europe is. People there have a much deeper sense of history and uh, how uh, superficial the education system is in North America and how um, ahistorical we have a view we have. Uh, we don't know. We, we denigrate it. It's kind of like the British utilitarian influence of everything has to have a practical outcome. People don't care about the past. What matters is now. You hear that all the time from Canadians. Well, that happened years ago. What does it matter now, right? as if it didn't right. formulate us, as if it didn't determine how we act now. Um, but Europeans are very different, and any mention of history, they are very they get right into and they want to dig. And that really helped us in this work, mm-hmm. because uh, this is really about history, about a whole tradition, how it carries on today. Yes, it is. So there are two main um, areas that I think we wanted to talk about today. Um, one of them is the incidents in Rome, to go more detail into that, and the other one is the mushhole dig. So I wondered, um, which one did you want to um, start off with? Well, chronologically, it, it really um, it, it kind of went back and forth, but the first event really was in Europe in 2009, 2010, when I was invited to Rome and Ireland and other places for the first time. And one thing fed off another, like as we worked in Rome, some of the chiefs back in the Mohawk territory heard about that and invited us to do the dig in 2011. And when that dig was shut down, we then took the evidence and went back to Europe and used it in the first common law court case. So, um, you know, we can, in terms of, of, of what we're talking about, uh, because it goes back and forth, maybe we can um, look at the mushhole first, because it's it's indicative of what we're talking about. You know, in terms, especially in terms of the role of the, the government chiefs in shutting things down in Canada, they're like what the government and the churches used to be. They now get their native puppets to do. Um, yes. And the uh, the thing about the the, the mushroom dig is it. And you know, Rachel, it, it's like uh, symptomatic of the whole situation. The evidence is there, right in front of our face, but people just can't or won't look at it. Um, right. We got invited out in October 2011 by ten chiefs of the Mohawk Confederacy in Brentford, Ontario. We were asked to come and, and see if they, we could find the remains of children at the oldest Indian residential school, the, the Church of England school, uh, in the Mohawk school it was called, built there in 1832 and right up to the 1970s. Um, they had identified a number of mass grave sites. We went up there with accredited archaeologists. We did ground-penetrating radar. We found mounds kind of dis. Uh, dislocated soil uh, mounds, and sure enough, we did a test dig, and within a half an hour, we found these bones and buttons, and it was chilling. I mean, we were there, we had Bill and Cheryl Squire, who the two of the Mohawk elders who invited us, they did. They opened the ground, they insisted that they be the ones to open the ground, so it couldn't be claimed that, you know, these white people came in and did it against their will, which is part of the smear against us all the time. And okay. we found these buttons and bones, entangled in the roots of little trees. And one of the, uh, Leona Moses, one of the eyewitnesses who had survived the, the mushroom, she said they used to plant trees on top of the burial sites of the children. And sure enough, there in the roots are buttons that they identified came off school uniforms and bones, one of which proved to be uh, 
90% human is the way that uh, two of the archaeologists who were with us there described it. 90% sure it was from a young girl around five or six years old. And uh, right. the bones had been cut up and burnt, uh, and they were just all messed together like it was a mass grave. So, you know, we, we um, with the permission of the elders, we went public with that. Within a couple of days, the whole thing was shut down. Threats against the elders, um, strong-arm tactics, big smear campaign in the local media about us, the usual methods they use. And uh, because, that, you know, the first time ever the remains had been surfaced. Now, do you think one newspaper in Canada reported? I mean, even if they don't even, even if they're critical of us, they didn't even report that it was going on. The first dig at a residential school grave in history blacked out completely. Wow. So that's incredible. Yeah. So why do you think it wasn't reported anywhere why? in Canada? Oh, well, well, I mean, it, I think we know generally why because it's it's indicting the whole, <laughs> the government and 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 the churches, um, and it it would open a whole can of worms. I remember once a Mountie told me when we were poking around the the site in Mission, BC. Uh, of the residential school, he said, nobody wants to open this can of worms anymore. And I say, really? Why is that? And he said, well, take a guess. That's all he said to me. But mm-hmm. it was said in a very malevolent kind of way because the Mounties knew they're up to their eyebrows in complicity. They were the ones who took the children into these places and, and hunted them down. You know, that, that's the thing. When you're, when you're in a, involved in a group crime, everybody is implicated. So nobody wants it to come out, right? And when somebody yeah. starts going against the agreement... The unspoken agreement, um, you know, yeah. enough said, right? Right. I'm gonna. I'll ask you a difficult question if you don't mind, and yeah, we maybe do. don't have to go too deep into it. But um, I think it's important when because we're talking about the details and we're talking about the things that are really um, difficult about this, uh, the evidence. Um, but when you talk about the bodies that were found, um, you said that you described them as cut up and burned. So um, that says to me that these aren't children that were just placed into a, a grave and buried, that this, like, something happened to them before they died or after they died, before they were buried. So what, um, what do you think happened there? What well, we know from a lot of oral testimonies, uh, and, and just for folks who don't know who might be listening for the first time, uh, on our, our book, Murder by Decree, which you can get on Amazon, uh, Murderbydecree.com, you can see online. Uh, numerous eyewitnesses there, a total of 358 people gave testimonies that went into that book. And numerous people uh, describe what happened, uh, either when they were burying, they were involved in burying other kids from the school, they witnessed it. Um, Irene Favell, Saskatchewan, uh, she described seeing a newborn baby thrown into an oven by a Catholic priest yeah. at a school in Saskatchewan oh in 1944. Um, uh, one of the the fellows um, at the Mushhole described children being actually shot and thrown into a mass grave and then have lime thrown over them uh, by soldiers in Brantford in 1943, like during World War II. Um, there were mass executions going on in Canada as well, but these have been, you know, the standard way that you dealt with the corpses, you burned it, or the bones would be cut up, the body would be cut up, just like they do the standard ops with a serial killer, is you chop up the body and throw it in among pigs or animals that are going to eat it. That's why you often find mm-hmm. pig and, and human remains mixed together, like with the Picton killings out on the West Coast. So I these see. were the, the preferred methods, and uh, that's what we uncovered. We, saw, we found these probable human bones in that condition. Mm-hmm. Um, so if that isn't very strong <laughs> evidence that needs, it's a crime scene. Under the law, right. the police should have been in there right away and shut it off. And yet, once again, like out in BC, totally ignored any any appeal to do that. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. So the evidence was, was found, and then um, you said that was something that was brought back to Rome then and moved things forward in that area? Well, we took it to, uh, it, it, right at the same time, the, the first common law court in Brussels was being convened, and uh, this would have been in early 2012. And we had so much evidence out of Canada that we had to put it into an, another forum. And, and so part of the evidence in the prosecutor's docket was, in the case, was this evidence from, from the Brantford dig. The statements of Greg Olson, the, the Ontario provincial coroner, and Chris Nargang, the archaeologist from uh, uh, Trent University, 
both of them sitting there in front of us. We have this on film, examining the bones and saying, you know, we agree this is very likely a child's remain. The police should be called in. Mm-hmm. Um, he had the right. You see, Chris, um, Greg Olson had the right to issue a coroner's warrant, which would have allowed all the Anglican Church records, the Anglican school ran, uh, Anglican Church ran the school, all of the Anglican school records should have been accessed by uh, Greg Olson. He had the right to seize property, to shut down sites, to allow police to come in to, to look. He had the power to do that, but he told me over the phone, I can't be involved anymore. My boss told me to back off from this, even on my spare time. I'm not allowed to come down and be oh. part of this. That was it. That's the interior government colluding and covering up genocide. So we realized we had to get it out of the country. So we took that, and that was a, a big component of what eventually found these Catholic, Anglican, United Churches, and the Crown of England, and the Pope himself guilty of all these crimes and cover-up. I see. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of overwhelming. I mean, when you look at it, it, yeah. <laughs> it leads people to think, well, why the hell carry on, Kev? <laughs> so why do you carry on? Um, at first, it was because I didn't have any other option. Uh, I didn't have any other option morally. Mm-hmm. Um, I was angry that this stuff was carrying on, but also, just on a, on a personal level, all my avenues were being shut off. I couldn't retrain. I was My university degree was shut down. I was blacklisted. It was almost like this hidden hand was saying, okay, Kevin, this is your job. I'm not going to let you do anything else. Um, mm. So in a way, it's because I didn't have any other options, and I thought, okay, my life is ruined. Why not just carry on? I mean, what can be lost? What more can they take from me? And right. that's a really important attitude. Like in my book, Fallen, um, I described that. The guys who were with me, the four people, Native guys, who were murdered on the streets of Vancouver because they were involved in this campaign with us, they were in exactly the same boat. They weren't like these sellout Native chiefs over on Vancouver Island who have all these benefits to lose. They had nothing left to lose, so they said, why not occupy these churches? Let's go for it, right? And that's a really yeah. important factor you know, in, in how we fight back when we realize it's kind of like our fear of losing something suddenly gives way to a stronger pull in us, which is, okay, what's going to happen if we don't do something? What's going to happen to those children tomorrow if we don't act? And that uh, we, we operate from a higher level all of a sudden. We, we've, we, we, become, we don't become the center of our own universe anymore. There's a higher fixed point in our moral universe, right? And that's what we operate right. from. That seems to be what still drives you. You know, um, when I look at what you're dealing with kind of in the present with the play, you know, you, you're still moving forward and, and you have creative ways to continue to tell the story um, it seems like you're you're still really driven to um, to move things forward with integrity and and get this story told. Well, you know, it's it's kind of like I I don't see what choice there is for anyone who has a conscience. I mean, we would like to think, and I get this from people a lot. We like to think, well, if we dabble in something for a little while, it'll get a result, you know. But the point is, mm-hmm. the reality is that. You have to take this on as a lifelong commitment because it's the only thing that changes, that has an impact. And also, your understanding of the world changes. It's like we, I realize now that, like, my my sense of reality had to undergo a major shift. And I realize the world is not the way I thought it was. We are, like you understood, in 2011, we're Mm -hmm. at war. And it's not going to get fixed by some father figure doing it for us, some politician or judge or, or leader somewhere, um, it, it's only going to come from us. And that's why we really emphasize now the common law training and people taking action in their own community, right? Right. Yeah, when we see that what's, what's out there isn't working and, um, you know, it, it needs to be replaced with something. We need to build something more positive and more with more integrity. Um, certainly we have to replace it. <laughs> and you can see how um, the common law courts um, provide an alternative to, to what's out there. Yeah, and it, it, it takes a mental leap to get there because it's kind of like um, where the first thing we realize is how much we are part of the problem in the sense that our biggest enemy is our own habitual thinking, the way we've been conditioned to think about everything. And uh, yeah. it's almost like like an exorcism. You know, like in an exorcism, there's three phases. 
there's the naming of the of the entity and uh there's its expulsion that's phase two and then there's its replacement of the occupying spirit with with light with mm-hmm. with a natural spirit with a person's own soul if you like and mm-hmm. all three of those things it's kind of like i've gone through that we have to experience this in our life before we can create it in the world my illusions had to get smashed and they were smashed right out of me as i realized that i was being targeted for destruction and there was mm-hmm. no let up and that shifted the way i looked at things uh, you know I, I realized that all the people who should have been there for me weren't they all vanished and other right. people came forward um, and then over time, something else began to grow up in me, and I'd lost my fear. And I, I don't really have a name for that, um, why that mm-hmm. happened. But I think it comes to anybody who just keeps at it. We just have to be persistent, yes. stubborn, you know. Right. You know, there's a question I think that people um, bring up often around this issue, and you've probably heard it often. I wonder if I can ask you the question, and um, let's hear what your answer is to this. Um, but some people seem to think, you know, what you're talking about, it's in the past. And, you know, why, why, why bring it up or why continue to rehash these old things? So what, uh, what do you say to that? Well, it's not in the past at all. It's, uh, you, all you have to do is go into a native home and look. Look at the intergenerational genocide and trauma still carrying on because the whole society is denying it. And native people are, are it's wired into the brain to deny it as well. I remember when I had my church in Port Alberni before they booted me out, there was one Native family that began to come into our all-white congregation because I had gone out and, you know, was trying to pull people in and all that. And because um, people were using our food bank, and I said, well, come up to church, right? First Native family that did that, the Keetla family, um, they had uh, recovered some of their traditions, and they had stopped drinking, and they made a point of getting their family to break from that habit. They were totally ostracized in the Neutralness Native community. They said, oh, you're trying to be like the white man. You're better than us now, right? They were trying to pull them back down all the time. And I find that, exactly, you get isolated if you stand back and challenge the thing that you're once part of, right? Native or white is the same story. And and so, you know, um, tell me your question again. I forgot it because I was thinking of poor old Bernie there. Sure. No, you you answered the question uh, in yeah. in some okay. regards. So the question was about why um, you know all of this happened with the residential schools in the past. Why oh, the are past, we still right. talking about it? But the answer is that it's not in the past. This is still happening in modern day. Like this is happening today. Right. And that's that's yeah. part one of the answer. The part two is that under the law, there's no statute of limitation on murder or crime. You know, it could happen fifty, hundred years ago. It's still a crime. And so that whole thing about history somehow absolves things, it doesn't. Um, if you do not face your crimes as a people, they will continue. Uh, it, ma- it makes it all the easier for the crime to happen tomorrow if it's never been dealt with. You know, and uh, we're seeing the witnesses of that. Look at how many people are disappearing now. Look at the rising violence and the corruption. That's because we carry a stain of genocide. We have done genocide here on the land. We've never faced it, and so we're doing it to ourselves. It's like Vietnam vets bringing the war home, you know, and now America's at war with itself and tearing itself to pieces. That's because they never dealt with their shadow, just like Canada's never dealt with it. So we are reaping the seeds of our own destruction by not facing it, by doing these phony TRC cover-ups and and phony, you know, commissions that just conceal more than they reveal and absolve the perpetrators. We're, We're just destroying ourselves in the long run, and... We have to uh, take the step, and the fact that I, I get attacked all the time is just what you do. It's like what happens in a family where, the, where there's abuse going on. The one person who yeah. starts talking about it, you know, what happens to them? They get ostracized, demonized, driven from the family. That's part mm-hmm. of it. That's part of growing up. <laughs> but, you know, it, yeah. it, it'll change. It, the seeds, the important thing is I want everyone to know that we are making headway because we're being so stubborn. And uh, they have to respond. Look at, you know, this latest example on Vancouver Island. They were terrified of this evidence of the medical experimentation. Why? Because the whole point of this experimentation was military-backed mind-control experiments um, to see either those social engineering programs they tread out on natives, they apply to the whole culture now. It's being done to all of us. So they don't want that coming out now. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very, very difficult um, topic. Nobody, I mean, that was when I when I talked about what happened uh, with me in 2011. That was part of it was that I realized this is this isn't in the past. This is happening now, and um, it's, it's happening everywhere. You know, it's it's not isolated to one specific group or one specific country. Actually, it's something worldwide. And, you know, I understand when people don't want to face this because, I mean, what I realized when people often ask, well, what did this do you you personally and do you still see your kids and all this, you know, my two daughters, Mm -hmm. um, we can't understand our own level of grief and suffering. It it has to unfold naturally. And that's why to kind of bring people together into a, quote, healing circle and say, well, let's talk about our pain. We can't ever really, we, we never talk, I found this with working with many survivors of these death camps called residential schools, you know, um, they can never talk about the really bad stuff. It takes months, years for any of this truth to come out um, right. because we don't, we don't even understand our level of grief and what it's done to us, right? And, and that's why right. it's hard, I remember when we were talking about that question to talk about on the air today, um, I think that's what I said to you, that I don't, I, I don't even know how to answer the question of, like, why am I still here? Why am I still going? Because part of me doesn't feel like I'm here. Part of me feels mm. dead. They killed part of me. They killed that innocent, trusting man I was. That's the truth. Mm. And somebody else had to, another persona step forward to take his place because I had to. I had to keep going. I'm, I'm harder. I've got more of an um, armor around me now than I ever did. But... Right. Um, I feel that there's been a death in my own life that I'll never be able to recover. My kids sense mm-hmm. that. That's probably one of the reasons they, they avoid me. They don't want to look at that pain, you know? That's a yeah. hard... That that's There's no healing there, let me tell you. But it's part of the reality we face. Yeah, it's part of... It's like the death of the old self and then a birth of a new self and um, yep. continuing to grow in, in, in different ways and developing a self that you didn't have before parts of the self. We were talking before about um, just, you know, the, the tragedy of losing your wife um, during that time. And um, I think that's, you know, the, the, from what I understand, that would have been um, a very, uh, a very devastating loss. And there's, you know, she's still alive as a person, but the marriage died um, through all of this, uh, the attacks on you and, um, it's it's a tragedy in your own personal life that you've experienced uh, so much uh, so much attack. Well, you know, it's one of the reasons. Uh, the last eighteen months, I've written six books, and one of them is this whistleblower training manual. and And it, it was very cathartic write, re, uh, writing the thing because it was really just talking about what happened to me. And what I realized was, the first thing you do is how you handle whistleblowers. You go to their spouse. You go to the spouse, you mm-hmm. get them to leave, and then you take their children from the person and then hit them with crushing support payments. And you can, if they can't pay, you can hang the odious label on them of a deadbeat dad, right? I mean, all of these right. psychological warfare techniques brought to bear on a whistleblower. They tried the gamut with me. And um, the fact that Anne, my ex-wife, fell for it was it was horrible what had happened to her as well. She was in counseling for her own sexual abuse at a young age. The church knew about that, and they got the counselor. The counselor who was, Anne was dealing with in Port Alberni shared that information with the United Church, and they used that as a lever with her. They went to her and said, look, mm-hmm. Anne, he's never going to work again. Uh, you're not going to be able to feed your kids. He's going to be blacklisted. If you want to leave him, we'll help you. And that came out in divorce wow. court. They actually said that to her. They paid for her divorce. They made sure through a compliant judge, friends with the church, that I lost custody, I got hammered, I only got to see them four week, four hours a week, you know. And they knew, they. when you're a minister in the I church, you have to do what's called this Myers-Briggs psychological profile yes. <laughs> when you're training, so they got everybody pegged, they know how to hit your buttons, right? They knew right. what a trusting soul I was, they knew how, what, because of my own upbringing, uh, how important and sacred family and children were to me and separating being separated from my kids it's like you know the worst thing possible and that's exactly what they went for and they figured it would destroy me but they didn't understand that we're more than who we think we are and this higher self kicks in and we're chosen to do these things and they activated 
<laughs> they brought down their own yeah, destruction. They activated your higher self. <laughs> they helped, and that's why it's kind of like, yeah. I love that saying, be thankful for your enemy, because he's your unknown ally. He yeah. shows you who you are and allows you to be get stronger. So it's that, it's that kind of yin-yang dance going on. And uh, yeah. I, I'm, now I'm thankful for the whole thing, because it allowed me to find my purpose and know mm-hmm. my purpose and not be complicit to the degree that I was, but um, horrible human price, and it crushes a hell of a lot of people. And that's why we've got to be out there for people. And, and I wrote those books to look to say, look, pre-warned is pre-armed. This is what they're going to do to you. This is They use these tactics on all of us who step out like this. Right. You know, you mentioned a term um, uh, a few, I don't know, uh, 10 minutes ago or something like that, but if I could go back to it for a second, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, so diverging from where we are for a moment, but um, you just, you had mentioned, you called the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, you called it phony, and I just wondered, um, you know, why why would you use that the term to describe the, them uh, as phony? Good question. Because it was set up by the very agencies that did the crime. Uh, the mm-hmm. churches nominated the TRC officials, approved order in council, not even debated in parliament by the by the prime minister's office. The mm-hmm. TRC mandate said. Uh, they weren't allowed to take any testimonies that named a capital crime or the death of a child. They weren't allowed to lay charges. Uh, the the record could be censored. Uh, the survivors, I went to several of these sessions. They were disgusting. They gave the survivors 10 minutes at the mic, but then the Catholic bishop got to come get up at the mic for 30 minutes and go on and on about how they were really trying to help children. They were brutalizing, the re, re-traumatizing natives deliberately, in a public setting. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think the term reconciliation is an accurate one, because if you look at the meaning of the word, it comes from an old Roman practice, uh, where when a tribal chieftain in the Roman Empire rebelled, he was brought in chains <laughs> to Rome and experienced what was called the reconcilia, which was a, a ritual where he had to supplicate himself before the emperor, beg forgiveness, and then he was ritually strangled in front of everyone. That was called being reconciled to the emperor in the in the uh, really? Inquisition. Yep, in the Inquisition, if you read the Inquisition records, it says so and so, convicted as a heretic, was reconciled to the church through loss of property and five years in prison. The term reconciliation mm-hmm. means you resubordinate somebody into a minor oh. status again. You make them a slave again. That's what reconciliation means. But English has this double meaning of all the words, like apology which means to defend your action, it also means to say you're sorry. It, it, the, the elites are using language in one way, and we're thinking it means something else, when in fact they're saying, yeah, reconciliation mm-hmm. means we've gotten away with a crime, and you stupid Indians have helped us do it by taking 10000 bucks and signing away all legal action, which is what they had to do to get any money. Mm-hmm. And, right. you know, the, it's the way slaves operate, and Aboriginal culture in Canada is a slave culture. It was set up that way. That's what ab-original means, not of the original group. Abnormal. Mm. Um, I've met very, very few indigenous people who've held on to their own soul and spirit. Most of them are like those chiefs on Vancouver Island. They'll do what they're told to do. You know, mm-hmm. they become mm-hmm. as white as the whites. And um, it's not racism, it's a fact. Yeah. I, I know what you mean. I know... Um, mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, if maybe speak more to that, you know, what, um, if you can. Well, it's hard because I'm a product of it myself. You know, it's, it's like talking about the water we swim in as a fish. Um, mm-hmm. we're, we're, um, I don't think we're able to really see it until we go through some kind of shock, which breaks us from all of our traditions, all of our past. We feel we're floating free and we acquire a new identity a higher identity, and then we're able to see these things. But we're all born into the slave culture of being managed people. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's most manifest recently in Native culture because it's happened most recently to them, but it happened to all of our ancestors in Europe by the same agency, the same church and state agencies. And really the hidden purpose of what our campaign is is to awaken people to that and reclaim the earth and our minds, starting with our minds, reclaim it from mm-hmm. the gangsters in charge. And uh, this is a way to do that, learning this stuff, 
um, as kind of the message of, of my recent books is that it's all about reclaiming our own mind, heart, and soul, and then the, our communities and our children and working out from there like a, like a wave, right? Right. Yeah, that's true, actually. It, I think that's at the heart of it. Um, and when we talk about uh, what, are we, what do we replace this with, um, it, is, it does begin with replacing it with consciousness and replacing it with your own sense of empowerment and your own sense of strength. And um, it's tied in, you, you made a statement there about like double speak, and you know, yep. um, it's, it's there in the media too, or it's there in any kind of this communication from, from the government or something. Um, and that, as a journalist, that was, that, that was sort of what, um, what was one of the components to what woke me up, because the more that I was trying to write with integrity and speak with integrity and um, make sure that my words and my actions were in alignment, then the more I could see how they weren't that way <laughs> in right. the other, in, in mainstream media and, yeah. and these kinds of communications that you're, that you're speaking of. And I could see how language was being manipulated and used. And yeah. um, it really, the, the devastating part of it that, I mean, if we think too much about it, it's very overwhelming because it affects so many areas. You know, it's affecting um, our air and it's affecting our water supply and our food supply. It's affecting our children's education and the school system. And um, it's hard not to be become overwhelmed when we think yep. of the, the big scope of it. But um, when we when we bring it back down to the point to the to remember that we all have control over our own minds and when we um, when we remember that, then we can overcome fear and overcome right. all past conditioning or past patterning or programming, and just um, recreate our own. And um, yeah. there is a there is freedom in that. There's actually there's a lot of freedom in that. Yeah, and I, I want to add to what you're saying is that it's that's all right. What you're saying exactly, and the way we learn that is not by talking about it with each other, because we are caught in this talk cycle. Um, in the internet culture, where people think yes. if if you talk about it and read about it, that's doing something. No, it isn't. What it's mm-hmm. doing is opening a door, and then you have to act. And it's the action that stu- everyone stumbles in because you think, well, what can I do? We think individualistically. Well, what we found in doing the work, when we all we did, we began. Here's an example in Vancouver. We just started walking down the street on a Sunday morning with our banner, and people would start coming out of the alleys. Again, these are people with nothing to lose. Fine, let's go to the church. We'd go in, we'd do an action at the church, we'd get yelled at, we'd have an experience with the cops, then we'd get back together and talk about it, right? And it was real. It was something real that had happened. And so it wasn't abstract. We all learned together, and it strengthened us for the next time. So I would say to people, don't form a discussion group. Form an action group. Go and do something and then talk about it. That's far more energetic and... uh, it brings you alive more than any amount of words. Get away from the bloody Internet and get out and have an experience in your community of anything. It doesn't matter what the issue is. Act and keep acting and keep meeting, you know, to talk right. about what to do next. And that's how we build alternatives. That's how also you show people that you, that you have something to offer them. I know some of the people we knew in Toronto were, were, were trying to do that with tenants who were being evicted. They were presenting statements to the police saying, you know, you represent Crown Authority. It's a criminally convicted agency. You have no authority here. Stand down. And mm-hmm. it's worked in a few occasions when we've done that. If you can show people that we have power, then you start building something, right? Yes. That's excellent. And I, I recall a list I've read recently of, you know, some um, actions people could take that you, you know... Um, do you, do you have a few favorites that kind of come to mind well, from that yeah. list? Oh, i got lots of them when it comes to the church. Because <laughs> they're so easy to provoke in, Rachel. I mean, they know they're yes. so guilty, and they're sitting there so piously pretending to represent God when they've got blood on their hands and lies on their lips, right? And mm-hmm. um, they are so easy to provoke. All you have to do is, I mean, here's one idea. You post a sign on the local church, close for moral renovation, right? Or you... Or, <laughs> <laughs> or you padlock the door and then film the reaction. Say, you know, you're not, right. you shouldn't go into this church because by giving money to it, you're killing children. You're protecting mm-hmm. child killers. Um, do anything that's creative. I mean, you know, um, it, it's, it's really um, it, 
we have to overcome our fear of these false authorities, right? And the way you yeah. do is in practice. And I've seen miracles happen when people take the step and do that, right? Right. Well, surely, I mean, you know, there you've had a lot of victory over the past um, 25 years. And so clearly, clearly you're doing something right and clearly progress is being made. And um, as much as there's um, a lot of work to, to still be done, um, it shows that just, just one person or a few people can really make a big difference, you know, in, in a city or in oh, yeah. a, a town or anywhere. If you keep at it, you know, that's the thing. Because when you keep at it, you become a veteran. Um, mm-hmm. There's no experts in this. You're your own expert. And you become your own veteran. And then you realize, okay, this is my purpose now. I can change the world. I can change myself and, and the people around me. We can, the power's in our hands. And uh, so that's why I say the important thing is just get out there and keep active and, uh, and also make connections. Like, we can't do this alone. We are, we're, we're really, most of it's underground. You don't see it. Um, but it isn't rocket science. I mean, I'm sitting here, I'm looking out the window, and this was an incident that happened just yesterday. There's a little robin building a nest, okay, and there's two little baby birds there. And she's bringing back worms. She, she's doing what mothers do. They feed their young. An owl yeah. showed up on a branch just across the yard. And it had a mouse in its talon, and it was a spooky little thing. It's staring at this bird nest. Obviously, it wants to eat the the baby birds. This mother robin attacks the head of this owl. Bang! Hits it. This monster. And then suddenly, these other birds show up, and they start bombing this owl to drive it away from the nest. It was beautiful to watch. They kept literally hitting this owl, risking their lives to protect their young. Or not even their own young, but the baby birds were being protected by all the local birds, the robins and the wrens and the others that were attacking this owl. Eventually it drove the owl away. Well, listen, people, if animals do that, why can't we? Why don't we stand by the young in our neighborhood like that? The fact that we're not following the natural law means something else is at work in us, something very evil and dark that would cause us to forget our most basic instinct of protecting our young. That's the basic question we have to ask ourselves. If we can't get aroused and angry over the death and trafficking and torture and murder of children, either in the past or now, what is wrong with us? What has happened to us? What do we have to recover in ourselves? Because we're inhuman. That's not right. That's not natural. You know? Right. right. Yeah, what I really hear you saying is about um, about all of us taking responsibility um, seeing what's going on and taking responsibility for our own lives and for the lives of the children around us and yep. our neighbors. And it, it's, it, it comes naturally. When people say, what do I do? I say, you know what you have to do. Your conscience tells you what you have to do. You don't have to ask me what to do. Mm-hmm. I, I had to learn myself. You have to learn. You know what, what you have to do. The question is, as um, Peter Yellowquill said on the show a few months ago, I said to him, what do you think is most needed nowadays? And he said, courage. It's that simple. Right. We just need right. the courage to step out. We know what the problem is. We don't need more inquiries. We don't need more radio shows telling about what the problem is. We know who is to blame, what the problem is. We need the courage to act. Stop yeah. them and build something different so it doesn't keep happening. I mean, <laughs> it's pretty straightforward, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you mentioned courage, a, a quote came to mind, actually, uh, one of my favorite quotes. It says, um, love cannot dwell in a heart possessed by fear. And I often remember that quote when I'm thinking of, you know, when fear comes, it's just it's a matter of just transforming that into courage and transforming it into love and, and being passionate about what you're doing and, and just going for it. Absolutely. It really makes a difference. We got about three or four minutes left. It's it's been a hoot. I've really loved talking to you, and we're going to carry this on again. Um, maybe not next week, but soon, because uh, we've got a number of other guests lined up for the coming weeks. We have a guy calling them from Scotland uh, soon, hopefully next week, and he's in the process of setting up. He and a whole network there, uh, common law courts in England, issuing stand down orders to crown officials. Like they've picked up the ball that we started and are running with it. Very exciting stuff Excellent. going on. And a report of the uh, common court being set up in Serbia to try the Vatican for war crimes uh, in the 1930s and 40s, where they tried to wipe out the whole non-Catholic population in Southeast Europe. That's a whole other genocide that's been buried from from the history books. We're going to have reports on that. Um, Anything you want to announce, Rachel, or comment on, or as we 
sign off? Um, no, nothing else to add. Just, you know, thank you for, for having me on today, and it's uh, always a pleasure to have a conversation with you. And, yes, and I, I want to thank you especially for, like, I like it when we get to the nub of things and not just describe things, but actually find out what's moving us. And that's, I think, what will activate other people. It's kind of been my experience. Um, mm-hmm. Question to you, just in the last minute or two. Um, has your experience been, when you're talking about this thing of child abuse, is that the main thing standing in the way people take in action? Is it fear? Is it as simple as that from your experience? From my experience, it is fear. And it is um, people are afraid... Um, In my experience, people are very afraid to lose especially their job or their source of income or their home, and they don't want to step outside of anything that would possibly shake that um, sense of stability that they have. And I oftentimes will say it's a false sense of stability (laughs) because anything could happen any day. And um, actually being, being afraid... To stand up for what you believe in um, actually will leave you more unstable than anything. <laughs> right. And, so, and in fact, yeah. I often think it's good if people go through the suffering and go through loss and lose their home and everything, because that's when they start waking up. And my experience has been, yeah. you know, I've lived on the street. I've lived out of my car. I'm always supported by that hidden hand, yeah. by people coming forward. I don't worry about that anymore. Um and, exactly. you know, and so we don't have to, we can lay that fear aside, and we are not even talking to the majority who are afraid. We're talking about the minority. We don't need a majority. We only need that active, awakened minority to move mountains. We've proven that, right? Right. For sure. Yep. For sure. So thank you, Rachel, once again. And uh, for everyone listening, uh, itccs.org, murderbydecree.com. Write to us, republicofcanata at gmail.com. Go to amazon.com, write Kevin Annett, A-N-N-E-T-T, and you'll see all of our six recent books, especially Fallen, the story of the Vancouver Four. It's a personal account of how our four friends, Native friends, uh, were targeted for killing by church, state, and police in that in that city after they began to expose these crimes publicly. So we hold up them and all of us in our common struggle. We'll be back next week. And until then, brothers and sisters, stay strong, stay clear. Thank you. 